Let's pray together. Father, we have just testified to the truth that this text holds for us. That, Lord, um, if we woke up this morning and had breath to draw, and all of us in this room did, then you gave that breath to us, Lord, to testify to your greatness and to praise you with it. And we pray that you'll show us, Lord, um, through your word today, uh, what that looks like. Father, help us to worship you today as we come before you now through your word. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So if you've been with us at Westwood for any period of time, you know that it's our it's our practice. It's it's the way we study and grow together in Christ is just to go to God through his word and to study books of the Bible, a book at a time, a chapter at a time, verse by verse, working our way through the word. And, and we don't do that very topically in the sense of I don't come in with a topic in mind most of the time. We're just going to let the Word intersect our lives wherever we are and let the Holy Spirit do His work. And then the body of Christ, God uses the body of Christ to take that Word and apply it into our lives. So that's the way we do things most of the time. And there are times, also if you've been here for any period of time, you know that there are times where on occasion... We'll back up and we'll look at things from a topical standpoint or from a, some theological point that we need to look at. And we'll, like Paul told Timothy in, in 2 Timothy, that he is to remind the people. Peter, in two verses in 2 Peter, says, I'm, I want to remind you or stir you up by way of reminder. So sometimes it's appropriate for us to back up and just be reminded of what the Word says in, in regard to a certain topic. And so toward the end of last year, the elders in November and December, as we're working on our budget and stuff like that, said, well, it's been a while since we've addressed the issue of biblical stewardship and understood what the Bible has to say about um, about God and about the stuff that he gives us. And I'm sitting in that meeting with all the elders, I'm going, oh, man. Not that I have any reservation to preach about stewardship. It's like we've been talking for months about starting First and Second Samuel. And I'm excited to get into First and Second Samuel. That's what I want to do. That's what I've been working on. And so, you know, we have a plurality of elders here around that table. All of us have equal voice. And so I said, well, you know, if that's what you believe the Lord's leading us to do, and we believe that together, then we'll do that. So all of the holiday over Christmas and New Year's, I'm going... And then I thought, well, let's just do both. Let's do both, okay? So, we're going to do both for three weeks, all right? Now, what I mean by that is this. In the life of David, as we get into First and Second Samuel, we will eventually come to uh, this picture of King David. And, of course, that picture of King David will ultimately lead us to King Jesus, as all the Old Testament does. That's the point of it, right? So we will get there. But there are chapters in David's life, there are events in David's life that exhibit an amazing heart for God, which, of course, the Bible tells us that David had that heart, but also shows us in David this picture of generosity. That's why I've called this the the generous king. But here's what we will see over the next three weeks, the Lord willing. David is the generous king. Because he is a grateful king. Because he's thankful. And he is thankful, he's grateful, because he is a worshiping king. And as David worships, really taking the role of a priest, again, picturing Christ as our prophet and our priest and our king, 
as he takes this role of priest and leads the people to worship, we will see David's understanding of God's heart as his own heart is reflected for us. Okay? So we're going to look at a couple of chapters in David's life and, and see this begin to unfold. Now, one of these events that we will look at happens early in David's life. Well, not early in his life per se, but early in his reign as king. Actually, before he ever ascends to the throne. Look at it for just a second, just so I can kind of give you a preview. All right? Turn in your, if you're using a pew Bible, turn to page 252. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now, David has been anointed as king by Samuel, and there's this, this picture of this conflict that's going on between David and Saul. All of that is taking place. But at the end of 1 Samuel, in chapter 30, we have this picture of David being victorious. And in chapter 31, we have this picture of Saul being defeated. And Saul dies. And I think chapter 30 and 31 are going on concurrently. I think as David is pursuing and rescuing those who have been taken captive, Saul is fighting the Philistines and is being defeated. I think those two things are going on at the same time. And, and I'm not going to get into chapter 30 today, but what happens is David goes and he defeats the Amalekites. He brings back every person, every cow, every sheep, everything that's been kidnapped. He brings them back along with everything that the Amalekites had been accumulating as they had gone and taken spoils from their victories. And he brings all this stuff back. And there's some men with David who said, who had stayed behind. They were exhausted. They were tired. They stayed behind. They weren't able to go into the battle. And they took care of the stuff, took care of the baggage, if you will. And those who had gone, some of those who had gone with David into the battle had said, well, we're going to divide up all this stuff, but they don't get any. They stayed behind. They didn't fight. So they don't get any of the spoils. And it says in 1 Samuel 30, David said, And in verse 23 of chapter 30, David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. And in that one sentence is this picture of David's heart and his understanding that, listen, men, we won because God gave us the victory. And anything that we have as a result of that victory is as a result of God's grace to us and his gift to us. And God gave it to us, and we will give it to others as God has graced us. And that's this picture, this understanding that victory and accomplishment comes from God, and the results of that victory then are distributed according to that grace. So David's heart there is seen in the beginning. He hadn't even taken the throne yet, and this is his heart we see. And it will be exhibited on throughout his reign until he comes up to the end of his life. And in the book of First Chronicles, we have this account of the chronicler. All right? Now, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, has been taken away into captivity. David has died. Solomon has died. The kingdom has been divided. It is a train wreck. And they've been carried away into captivity. And the chronicler is recording and reminding the people of God of God's faithfulness. And he's retelling the story of David's life. And the chapter that we find, that we turn to in First Chronicles chapter 29, is at the very end of David's life. And he's leading the people to bring together an offering, bring together the resources for Solomon to build the temple. David had a heart to build it. And God said, no, 
You'll not build the temple. And we'll, we'll see that as we get into First and Second Samuel. But David had a heart to see that Solomon was prepared, trained, spiritually ready, and financially ready to build the temple. And in the first part of chapter 29 is this extraordinary picture of the offering that was brought in. It's, it's mind-boggling. And if you do the math, and, and, and there's extraordinary language here to exhibit extraordinary generosity. And I'm not sure we can take the totals here and, and apply them literally in the sense of, well, that's what the dollars would be today. I mean, for crying out loud, David gave over five billion with a B worth of gold. If, if you just translate out the talents, pound of gold, ounce of gold, 1800 and some dollars an ounce, I think is what it is now. I mean, the numbers are extraordinary. They're mind boggling and they should be. But we shouldn't get captivated by the numbers. Because David's not. He's not captivated by the numbers. That's, that's not the point there. And so as we see David then leading the people in worship, following the, the taking of this offering, following what they give, then David exhibits this amazing understanding of God and of God's heart. And there's this extraordinary generosity that's coming forth from David here and from the people of God. And that's the picture I want us to see. Remember, David is a generous king. Because David is a grateful king. And he is grateful because he is a worshiping king. God is at the center of his heart. All right? It's important we recognize that. I have an old study on my desk at home by Chuck Swindoll. I think he wrote this thing 30 years ago on the life of David. And there's one little paragraph in there where he says this about David. He says, David was surrounded by limitless riches. Yet they never captured his heart. He fought other battles within, right? And we will see that. He fought some major internal battles and lost many of them. But Swindoll says he fought other battles within, but never greed. David was not trapped by materialism. David was not trapped by materialism. And I think 1 Chronicles 29 is one of the passages that shows us why that's the case. And how that can be the case for all of us. David is a worshiping king. And as Jason read, he began with this verse. David blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord God, the God of Israel, our father forever and ever. When God blesses us, what happens? Well, when God blesses us, we're better off afterwards than we were before, right? Yeah. He blesses us as He gives us strength, as He gives us help, as He gives us material things, as He gives us family, as He gives us houses. I mean, we could go on. We are better off with God's blessing than we are without it. Can we agree on that? So what happens when we bless God? Is He better off afterwards than He was before? Are we helping Him? Are we giving Him something that He needed? And something that makes him more God than he was before? No. When we bless God, as David here says, bless the Lord and blesses the Lord, we're not making him better off than we are. We are simply declaring what we recognize. We're declaring to God 
We are extolling. We are magnifying, making him bigger. We are in, in every way praising God as we bless God. Okay? We are declaring to him how great he is, how good he is, how beautiful he is, how kind and generous and holy he is. One writer said, praise or blessing God, if you will, leaves humanity out of the picture. I'm going to say that again. Praise leaves humanity out of the picture. It's just simply you and the Lord. Extolling Him. Magnifying Him. God, I bless you in your goodness. And that's what David does. He blesses the Lord. And he blesses the Lord with what we prayed earlier in the service. That yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Those words are found here. And many commentators, many scholars believe that Jesus is echoing back part of what David prayed here. So there's this picture of of us blessing God and praising Him. Now in the Old Testament, and, and I think we recognize this, right? Especially in a Pentateuch, in the first part of the Old Testament. The, the separateness of God is highlighted and much is made of Him being distinct and different and far above us. Remember the picture on Mount Sinai? Don't come near the mountain. Don't touch the mountain or you will die. There's this picture in the Old Testament of God's distance away from us and his separateness from us. And that is true. And I fear that lots of times we lose some of that. That reverence and that fear and that understanding of God's holiness. And and we see that in, in this prayer. But there's something else here. There's an intimacy. There's a love relationship declared in David's words. Notice that he says there, as he's praying, We bless you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father. I didn't know this until I was studying for this this first and second Samuel, but according to commentators, this is the first time in the Old Testament that God is referred to as, as a Father, as our Father. First time he's addressed as Father. Now, God has said previously in the Old Testament, I think as early as Exodus 4, Israel is my firstborn son. So he calls Israel his son. And he refers to himself as father. But this is the first time in the Old Testament, according to commentators, that God is referred to as father. And there's a little word there that's significant. We prayed it earlier. Our. That little pronoun is huge. Because here David is is just acknowledging in his prayer and acknowledging before God and before the people that our identity is more than just a nationalistic identity. Our identity is more than just Israel. Our identity is, is as your children. And we understand from a New Testament perspective that that is absolutely perfected in Christ, right? And so I don't pray, my Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. I pray with my brothers and sisters because, listen, I was not saved into a relationship with Jesus alone. I was saved into a relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm saved into a family. You get that? I'm saved into a family. Our Father is what David prays. And it's this beautiful picture of this deep affection, this love relationship. And David leads the people to understand that as he declares it himself. 
But then we get these characteristics. It, 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 it's this amazing picture. Look at what he says. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the victory, the majesty. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. What is David praying? What is he declaring? What do we learn from this? That God is great? Yes, we see that. Does he say that, that God is powerful? Yes. Does he say that God has glory? The word there actually is, there's, there's a couple of words for glory in the Old Testament. This one relates the beauty of God. Is he saying that God is beautiful? Yes, he's saying that. But he's saying more than that. Yours is the greatness. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. So these perfections, these characteristics of God that David is describing here, is not just that David, that God has greatness or that he has power or that he has beauty. He is greatness. He is power. He is beauty. He is the standard for that. That's the picture that we have here. The greatness there. This is this. God is immense. He's incomprehensible. When we say great, what comes to mind? I mean, it could be anything. It could be a football team. It could be a baseball team. It could be a car. It could be a pizza. Right? I mean, great in our mind can be anything. And David here is, is, is focusing on that which is immense and incomprehensible. And what he is saying there is, God, you alone are great and nothing else is. He says the same thing in Psalm 40. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation and continually say, great is the Lord. Can I just encourage us to tell God how great he is? In our quiet time, in our personal worship, in our corporate worship, God, you are great. The power is his. This power is almighty. It is irresistible. This power belongs to him. And any power you or I or anyone or anything else has is a result of that. All right? The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ holds this world together by his power, by his powerful word. So God is not just powerful. He is power. He is the source of that power. Psalm 21, David said, Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. He says later on, it begins with God's power. Psalm 21 ends in verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We sing and praise your power. Now we sing about God's love and we praise him for his love, and we should. But we should also sing about and praise him for his power. Yours is the power. Yours is the beauty, okay? Boy, do we ever need to understand a standard, a definition, and a source of beauty, and it is God. It is God. Oh, how that truth, that reality being lived out and understood in the lives of so many young people would transform their life. If they understood that beauty is defined, described, and Pictured in every way, God is the source, the definition, and the standard of beauty. It's not what the world says it is. Psalm 96, 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Beauty is his, or glory. He then goes on to say the victory. Yours is the victory. 
And the idea there is an enduring, everlasting success. Perpetual, eternal success. All right? That's the picture that we have here. He, he never has, never will lose. Okay? That's a worldview that would do us well to keep in mind. God has not and is not losing and will not lose, regardless of what around us may seem to contradict that. He transcends, he surpasses, conquers, and subdues all things. The book of Revelation shows us how that will ultimately end. And then it says, yours is the majesty. And I'm trying to think this week, all right, what, what, do we, what is majestic? I mean, I've seen the Dolomite Mountains in Italy. They're majestic. I've seen the Rockies. They're majestic. I've seen the Grand Canyon. It's majestic. I've seen the Queen and her regalia. And that's defined as majestic. The idea behind majestic here is, is this idea of authority and dignity. Dignity. That's a word we don't hear much of. Right? Susan, Susan, Susan this week said, I'm embarrassed. I said, what are you embarrassed about? I'm embarrassed about our government. I'm embarrassed about our Congress. And she, she had this picture of what was going on there in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Congress, you know, there in the House. There was no dignity, right? That's not a political statement. That's just the picture. That was the reality. There was no dignity there. Well, this picture we have here is this picture of dignity. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Grander, more dignified, more glorious than the Dolomites and the Rockies and the Alps and the Grand Canyon and the Pacific and on and on and on and on. You are majestic. You are majestic. In verse 11... He then begins, there's some practical implications to that. There's some reality that comes along with that. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. What David is declaring here, what his heart understands and what he sees about God's heart is that God is the rightful owner of everything. Period. He is the rightful owner of everything. As such, He is the ruler of everything. And that too, church, is a reality that will change our worldview. Change the way we live. Change the way we work. Change the way we save and spend God is the owner and ruler of everything. He is head over all, sovereign over all. And He is the controller. He's the giver. He's the blesser. He's the one who determines who will be rich, who will not, who will be powerful, who will not. And His definition and understanding of that, even as we look at it through the eyes of the New Testament, is going to be very, very different from what the world would say. Because his measurements of rich and powerful are not the world's, right? We get that. In 1 Kings chapter 3, as Solomon is taking the throne, 
in that beautiful moment in his life, he prays for God to give him wisdom. God says, ask me whatever you want to ask me. Solomon said, give me wisdom. And God's response in 1 Kings 3.13, I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. You go, wow, how cool would that be for God just to say, here it is, Gerald. It's a blank check. Well, guess what? He's done that in Christ. And I'm not talking prosperity and finances. Paul says in Romans 11:36, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. David understood in his heart, because he understood God's heart, that he could not serve two masters. That he would love one and forsake the other, or forsake one and love the other. And so David's heart was not captured by materialism because David's heart was captured by God. He was a generous king because he's a grateful king, as we'll see next week. And he was a grateful king because he's a worshiping king. Now, gratefulness is pictured in this passage. Look at verse 13. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. There's this gratitude. And not just is it a a gratitude, there's a humility there. There's a humble gratitude here. Who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer willingly? All things come from you and from your own we have given you. What a picture of humble gratitude. What a picture of acknowledging and praising and giving thanks where it's due. Verse 15, we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Now remember the context. The chronicler is writing this about David two generations before. And David was not a sojourner, so to speak, at that time that he spoke this. He was the king of one of the greatest nations on the face of the earth. But yet in his heart he understands, God, you are eternal and we are not. You are permanent, we are not. You are the owner, we are not. You are God. And we have blessings because you bless us. And we have prosperity because you have blessed us. And we have a place because you've given it to us. But we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are temporary. And that's the picture that we have here. Because when we see God as we should see Him, as great and magnificent and glorious and powerful and beautiful, listen, we see ourselves as we should. Right? Jesus gave us that contrast. of Those two men praying in the temple. That one lifting up his hands and so proud and thankful that he's not like that guy over there. Praise does not have his eyes horizontal. Where the publican just beats his head, beats himself and covers his head and says, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. David may be the king and that nation may be chosen, but God, you are sovereign, you are majestic, you are holy, you are beautiful. We are just temporary sojourners. We don't have any property. 
we don't have any security apart from you. In Psalm 39, David said, I'm a sojourner, just like all my fathers. In Psalm 102, verse 11, he says, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. You see, David understood this because he remembered what he was before he was king. He was a stinking shepherd. The youngest, the runt. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? He does exactly the opposite of what we might expect. Psalm 78, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. It's the same truth for us. Peter says, you are a chosen people. He's talking to you and me in Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people... Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he says, I urge you as sojourners to abstain from the passions of the flesh and wage war against your soul. When we see God as we should, we see ourselves as we should. And we see the things of this world as we should. We will see that in this picture of generosity. But I could not help but think back on Revelation chapter 4. The elders around the throne. Remember that? Worshipping God and praising God. And they fall down on their faces before God. But it says that they take their crowns. And it's a picture of, of all those accomplishments. All those blessings. All those things. All those pedigrees. All those accomplishments. Everything. They cast those crowns at the feet of God. Throw them to Him. Because they came from Him. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and through you, they say, by your will they exist. There's this humble gratitude. And then finally, look at verse 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. Now, I've gone through my Bible, and I've marked and highlighted the word heart. In fact, I spent some time this week going through all of the Psalms, read them all, and marked the word heart every time in the Psalms of David. Every time I saw the word heart, I would encourage you to take some time to do that and just see what, see what you see there in the Scriptures. Because understand, it's rare indeed in the Old Testament that the word heart is talking about this. It's not talking about that muscle in our chest. It's talking about Gerald, JT, Susan, you. It's talking about who you are as a person. It's talking about your whole being, your passions, your affections, your personality. Your heart is who you are. And so as David prays this prayer, Lord, I know, my God, that you test the heart. And you have pleasure in uprightness. And the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. 
O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, look at this prayer, look at this request, this petition. Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. And then he prays for Solomon, his son. Grant him a whole heart, an undivided heart, that he will keep your commandments and your statutes and your testimonies. So David prays for his brothers and sisters. You want to know how to pray for each other this week? Pray this sentence. Pray this prayer. O Lord, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. What, what purposes and intentions is he talking about? He's talking about in the moment there. They've just offered extraordinarily generous gifts. It's a church moment. Man, a call has been given and they flooded the altar. Their tears are on the steps. They're praying. And David says, oh God, take that intention, take that reality, and make it consistent. Make it last. Make it the mark of our lives. Not just the response at the end of a service. He says, I know you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. Now this is not a statement that elicits fear. The point is not to try to coerce people, okay? He's not saying, okay, we're going to sing one more verse. And it's not a statement of pride. Like, oh Lord, you see what we've just done. Now that's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying here is a reality that we will see unfolding in First and Second Samuel that I think is the most profound reality, one of the most profound realities in this whole section of Scripture that I think will help us see this whole passage, First and Second Samuel, all of what God is doing in the life of His people to bring them a king. I think we will see that in this passage. But if we go back in First Samuel 16, if we go back there and we hear the Lord say to Samuel, Samuel's there in front of Jesse and all of his sons, and you're familiar with this, in verse 7 he says, Do not look at his appearance. We're at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. That's the firstborn of Jesse. Big, tall, strapping, good-looking guy. And Samuel says, surely this is the one that God's chosen to be the king. And God says, no. Don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. A couple of commentaries that I have that have really helped me with this. I've gone back and studied a little bit of my Hebrew, just tried to look at this. A more literal translation of that sentence would be, The Lord sees not as a man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. So you and I see, as we're seeing right now, outward appearances, right? I, I see JT's shirt, you know, I see your sweater, I see outward appearances. God doesn't see that way. He sees according to the heart. Well, does that mean that he sees David's heart? Sure he does. He sees everybody. He, he knows what David's heart is. But I really appreciate what Don Woodhouse says in his commentary. One of the things he says is this, is, this says when God sees, he does not just see things with his eyes as we do, taking in only impressions. God sees according to his heart. That is, God's point of view is determined by His own will and purpose. He sees according to His own intentions, His heart. Samuel told Saul earlier, 
before this episode that we read where David is anointed, Samuel had already told Saul, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. That's what God was looking for. A man after God's heart. God's heart was the one making the determination. Not David's. You see that? Now David will grow to be a man after God's own heart. David will grow to understand God's heart, and as he grows to understand God's heart, his heart changes. But as, 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 as this picture for us is, is laid out, I mean, David got it. David understood this. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this eternal covenant with David that he will always have an ascendant, descendant on the throne. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, the King David went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and listen to this in verse 21 of 2 Samuel 7, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. David was a man after God's own heart because God had given him that heart. And David was a man who had affection for God because God had first loved him. And David was a man who had a right response to God because he was responding in worship and gratitude and generosity to God's grace given to him. And the uprightness of his heart, the word there literally means to be straight or to fulfill a purpose. The word flourishing is used sometimes. That's what David understood, that this is what I was created for. To worship and to be grateful and to give. This, this is my purpose. This is, and he says, God, keep forever the thoughts and the hearts of your people. Direct their hearts toward you. We will spend some time at the end of this little series looking at Philippians chapter 1. But you'll remember where Paul tells us that God will be faithful to finish the work he starts in us, right? You remember that? Philippians chapter 1. And then he prays that they would grow in their affection. He prays that they would grow in grace. He prays that they would grow in knowledge and in discernment. He prays that they would grow so that they understand what is excellent and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He wants, Paul is praying for those people and for us to have an upright, straight, flourishing, purpose, purpose-fulfilled heart. And that's what David is talking about here. David is a generous king because he is thankful. And he is a thankful king because he is worshiping. He is a worshiping king. Let me give you four points of application. I'll post these. We'll talk some more about them just in some follow-up stuff. Here's the first thing. Come to Jesus today. I mean, I haven't explicitly shared the gospel in, in the, maybe a summary statement. But God created you to know Him as your Father. And before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us in Ephesians, He has called us and chosen us to be adopted into His family as His children. And He has redeemed us to that end through the blood of Jesus. Trust in Christ today. Come into that right relationship with God through Jesus. As we will see... We can be thankful because of what Christ has done for us. We worship through Jesus and only through Him. Only through Him. He's the only way. 
And so this morning, I just encourage you to come to Christ. The uprightness, the straightness of heart that David talks about here, the purpose for the life that God has given you is found in Jesus. And I just encourage you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ today if you've not done that. Secondly, what can break the chains of materialism? And listen, we all struggle with this in one way or another. It's worship. It's our hearts set on, focused on, crying out to and exalting and blessing the God who created us. And worship breaks the chains of materialism. That's the reason I believe David was not trapped by it. And you can experience that freedom through worship, through having your heart's affection set on him. Thirdly, David is at the end of his life here in Second Chronicles 29. Okay, This is the last thing he does before he dies, according to the Chronicler. And I want you to think for just a minute, parents and grandparents, about your legacy. I want you to think for a minute about your legacy. And I want you to think for a minute about, about what that legacy will be. That old commentary by Matthew Henry says this in regard to this passage. This is so good. It is well, excuse me, it well becomes aged saints and dying saints. Well, now, let me just throw a parenthesis. Now, all of us are dying saints, okay? All right? I'm not joking about that. I was in Boone last week. And a 13-year-old boy, Chad Ellis, awesome kid, awesome kid, faithful in his church, faithful in his student group, president of the Future Farmers of America, businesses and professionals throughout the community were extolling this kid who early in the morning on a cold morning was with his grandpa taking care of their cows and the tractor rolled over and killed him. You are all a dying saint as I am. Okay? That's not being negative. That's just the reality. Now I get back to my quote. That wasn't in the notes, by the way. Matthew Henry says, It well becomes aged saints to have their hearts much enlarged by praise and thanksgiving. This will silence their complaints about their bodily infirmities and help to make the prospect of death less gloomy. Henry says most of David's later psalms are psalms of praise. Here's what he says. The nearer we come to the world of everlasting praise, the more we should speak the language and do the work of that world. Do you hear that? Aged saint, you figure out if you're in that group or not. Your legacy is what people hear at the end most often. And what we see David doing here at the end of his life is praising and extolling and blessing God in an extraordinary way. Establish your legacy. And then finally, parents and grandparents, what are we teaching our children about worship? What are we teaching our kids about the affection of our hearts? You know, again, Swindoll says David was surrounded by limitless riches. And in many ways, we are too. And I'm not just talking about what's in your checkbook or your bank account. I'm just talking about the context of the culture around us. 
It's extraordinary. The world's never seen anything like it. So parent, grandparent, adult, what are we showing our children and our students about the affections of our hearts? We see David's heart here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for this word. I thank you for the opportunity to study the life of David. And I pray, God, that we will look into the mirror of his life and look into the mirror of your word. And by the light of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we'll see our own affections and see our own true north of our heart, God. Set our heart, Lord, on you, I pray. That we would magnify you and bless you. And, Lord, this week our lives would be marked by worship, that we would offer you ourselves as living sacrifices, and that the song of our life and the walk of our life would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.